0: Hi. How's it going? Love what you've done with the place here. This is nice. Oh, stop. Love what you've done with the place. This is nice. Very good. I hear we do altar calls now. That's cool. All right. You leave for three months, and the whole thing just goes, man. Well, it's good to see you. My name is Brian Long. I am actually the teaching pastor here at Randall Church. And if you're new, if, you've been, have, if, if you're new in the last like two, three months, hello. I'm so glad that you are here. I would love to meet you. Uh, I'm going to be in the back. A uh, lot of new faces here, which is really exciting. I, I feel a sense of real growth and excitement here at the church. And so if you're new this morning, we have not met. I would love to meet you. I'll be in the back here as we go. Like I said, I'm a teaching pastor here. It is a delight to work with uh, our team here and to be back here with all of you. I've been on a three-month special assignment dan davis who has been here he was the lead pastor of one of our daughter churches renewal church he's been transitioning uh, into a new ministry season and so i left to go and be part of what was going on at renewal to help them land well Uh, so i've been on a special assignment for the last three months but i'm back now and i'm ready to jump in to second peter with you. So, one thing that I do if you're new here is I have a stand and say a prayer, and it's called Shema. It comes out of Deuteronomy 6. Shema means to hear. Or to listen And it's not just to hear as in When you tell your kid did you hear me You're not just asking them did you cognitively understand But are you going to do it Are you going to actually respond with this It's a prayer of commitment that Jewish people will pray at the beginning and the end Of every day that says God with everything That we are on this day Or every time that they approach the word Every time they read the scripture they say this prayer To say God we want to receive something from you And so we want to recommit Who we are back to you and so i have a say this prayer before every time we go to the text so if you would would you stand this morning and let's hear it. And one last thing, this prayer is prayed with passion. It's not just a, yes, Lord, I'm with you, I love you. It's saying, God, with everything in us as a community, we gather, there's something very special. There's something uh, very sacred when a group of people gather together in one room to hear God's word proclaimed to them. So there's just something that, that we should excite us. So we say it with passion. Again, it comes out of Deuteronomy 6. Say it with me. Hero Israel. Hero Israel. The Lord is our God the lord alone love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your might and love your neighbor as yourself amen and amen we're in second peter today second peter 1 1 and 2 we've read it once already but let's read it again so that we can uh so that we can really grasp it it's the opening greeting to it second peter 1 1 and 2 you will notice we have new Bibles. Take a look at those. We have new Bibles. Flip over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. You'll notice that the pews are in there and that we have changed uh, the translation. The translation in your pew Bible is the ESV, the, standard, uh, the English Standard Version. Now, the reason we've done this is the ESV is what's called a word-for-word translation, meaning the original language is translated into English word-for-word, even when it sounds awkward. So you're going to notice in the ESV every once in a while, something's going to sound maybe a little awkward, maybe not used to what it is. That's because they're going word for word to translate it versus uh, what we would call a sense for sense or a thought for thought style of translation, something like the NIV which smooths out the reading to try to capture the idea of the text. Now, both styles have their positives and their negatives. So you don't have, if you have an NIV, you don't have to throw it away. It's not bad, it's it's just a different type. It's a style by style versus a word for word. We're just finding that as we continue to hone in on our preaching, as our pastoral team is honing in and really want to preach as best as we can— we are finding that for preaching purposes, it is more natural to trace the purpose and the logic of the text using the ESV and helps us stay more consistent for us across our preaching styles, across our preaching team. So we will be preaching moving forward the ESV, but like I said, the NIV is not wrong either. If you've got one, keep it. It's good. Uh, but that's what we're going to be doing moving forward. Lastly, before we read the text, is when you walked in, you might have seen one of these. This is a, uh, this is a uh, prayer journal, a scripture journal, that has our text in it, and it has notes for you to take. So we're going to be providing these every time we start a series. We will be providing these so that you can take notes, you can read. The text is a little bigger, so if you struggle a little bit with the Pew Bible a bit, this text is going to be a bit bigger, but it'll just give you a chance. Take some notes, write some thoughts, perhaps keep each one. Maybe in a few years you'll have a nice little collection on yourself of notes and thoughts as we study the word together. So you can grab these, uh, you can grab these at any time. Feel free to grab one right now if you want to start in on the service. These are available, though, in the back for you. And now, the word of the Lord, 2 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and in our Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. So yesterday, I was honored to lead Wally and Kathy Duff through a renewing of their marriage vows while celebrating their 50th anniversary. Can you give them a round of applause? 50 years. Amazing. Kathy is still wearing her corsage. That's beautiful. I love it. So as I was thinking through that, um, uh, there's a line of questions I have today for the married folks out there. Uh, Maybe you've been married more than 50 years. Uh, Likely most of us have not. So a few questions for the married folk today, and if you're single this morning, I still think you can play along, I still think you can, you can answer these questions, maybe with a very good friend, or uh, perhaps uh, uh, just in general, you could kind of dwell on these questions. I have three questions for the married folk this morning, so get ready. First one, how do you or would you know that your marriage is real? How would you know that your marriage, or how do you know that your marriage is real? How do you know that this isn't just a sham? That one of you isn't just marrying in for the money? (laughs) Or some other reason that we don't know yet? There are are laughs for most of us, because that is clearly not the case. But how do you know? Right? Like, how do you know that there isn't some secret family somewhere else, right? And this whole thing is just this, uh, this charade that you're playing. Look at, look at your spouse, if they're sitting next to you, and just think on that. How do I know that this is real between you and me? Let me ask another question. And in order to ask this question, I want to quote for you one of the great philosophers of our day, the great Cosmo Kramer from the old Seinfeld show. Because he has a view on marriage himself. This is his view. This is what he contends. They're prisons. Man-made prisons. You're doing time. You get up in the morning, she's there. You go to sleep at night, she's there. It's like you gotta ask permission to go to the bathroom. Is it all right if I go to the bathroom now? And you can forget about watching TV when you're eating. You know why? Because it's dinner time. You know what you do at dinner? You talk about your day. How was your day today? Did you have a good day today or a bad day today? What kind of day was it? Well, I don't know. How about you? How was your day today? It's sad, Jerry. It's a sad state of affairs. (laughs) Let me ask you a question, married folk. How do you know that your marriage isn't a prison, some system of control that everyone told you you had to do, and now you're in it, and now you're stuck? How do you know that your marriage isn't a prison? Some system of control. Last one. How do you know your marriage will end the way you hope? How do you know? And I don't mean in some fairy tale, happy ever after sort of way. I mean for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. That kind of way. How do you know that your marriage will end the way that you hope. Friends, welcome to the letter of Second Peter. Now we'll get back to all of that in a little bit. Yes, we are going to talk through though right now the opening greeting of this letter. We find ourselves here in one and two in the opening greeting of an epistle. Now, we tend to gloss over the opening greetings because much of it tends to be the same as all the other greetings, right? It kind of feels like this obli- obli- obligation, sort of this formality before you can really get to the good stuff, right? So we kind of gloss over one and two, because kind of, really it's all kind of the same. It's got this rhythm to it. So if you've kind of read one epistle, one greeting in an epistle, you've kind of read them all. However, a letter's opening greeting often serves as the preview and focus to all of that good stuff. There tends to be something in the greeting that will alert us as a reader to understand where the entire letter is going. And how you find that is you discover what's different about this greeting than every other greeting. There are plenty of things that are the same. And when you understand all the things that are the same about an opening greeting, that's when you can pick out what's different. So let's do that this morning. Let's actually take a look at this greeting. Let's ask ourselves the question, first, what is the same about all of them? And then we will come back and then we'll answer, okay, now that we know that, what is different? So let's take, what's the same? Well, the first thing that jumps out is the author simon peter you see it highlighted here on the screen almost every epistle starts off with this way identifies who the author is if it's a letter you know you are going to identify yourself fairly early on in the letter so this is a very standard greeting his name peter's name was simon when he first became a follower of jesus but when he made his confession that jesus was the messiah jesus changed his name to peter which means the rock Jesus promised then that he would be a central leader among the apostles. He would build his church on this rock. And exactly that came, through, came true. Peter became a central leader of the early church. So he writes these letters, first and second Peter. He writes these letters as his send-off, his farewell, his, his admonishments to the church so that they could continue to live on well past himself. The title is next. Usually in epistle, there's a title. First, there is the identification of the author. Then there is a title. So we see it here. A servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this will vary a little bit here and there, uh, depending on on the epistle. Sometimes it'll say a little something different, an apostle, a servant, something like this. But very similar in title but what's interesting about this is he changes it up a little differently peter does from his first one if you compare it to first peter he slips in a servant if you go back you look at first peter his title he'll just say an apostle of jesus christ here though he drops in servant or bond servant literally in the greek a slave a slave to christ see what we discover is that at the conclusion of first peter is that he is in Rome and Peter's become aware of the fact that he's going to die soon. The evidence from the early church tradition is that Peter was crucified upside down by the Roman authorities during the reign of Emperor Nero. So his inclusion of bond servant here is actually fairly fitting as his obedience will ultimately lead to his death. In 1st Peter he leaves that out but now as it gets in inches closer and he's actually gonna mention it specifically in this letter He slips now in a servant, a bondservant, a slave to Christ, that ultimately that obedience will ultimately lead to my death. But again, it's very similar, very similar to all the other epistles. First you have the author, then you have the title. Next, typically what we'll see in uh, an epistle is the audience, Simon Peter, a servant of the apostle of Christ Jesus, to the churches of, to the whatever. Now, we don't have this in this greeting because Peter has already done it in 1 Peter. So we already know his audience because he did it kind of, it was part one. And in that one, when we take a look at it, he does identify his audience. Peter, 1 and 2 Peter were circular letters sent to a network of church communities in the wider Roman world of Asia Minor who were mostly non-Jewish. So he's sending this letter. It's not specifically sent to a specific church like you would see in uh, Ephesians or Philippians. This is a circular letter. It's going around to different churches, but it's going around sort of the Roman providence where these churches were mostly new converts. They were not Jewish believers that accepted Jesus as Messiah. They were brand new Christians trying to figure out how to be obedient in the midst of persecution and hardship false teaching. These were not the moral elite who had the religious pedigrees. They were first generation Christians trying to figure out how to live faithfully in a crazy world. Next in an epistle, we're usually given what's called a gospel exaltation, some sort of little mini blessing, little mini prayer, little mini a way in which that he kind of encourages the people that's there. We see it, it fits right to form, with what we see here in 2 Peter, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, every exaltation emphasizes different facets of the gospel depending on the audience and the situation. So highlighting equal standing based solely on the righteousness of Christ makes a lot of sense for Peter's audience. Hey, guys, you're one of us. You're one of us. I know you didn't come from Jerusalem. I know you're not connected. You have no, you have no uh, a pedigree. You have no moral standing. But listen, guys, as, as you read this letter around the Roman world, and it's so hard to be a Christian in the Roman world, guys, you're one of us. You've obtained a faith of equal standing to ours. And why is that? Only because of the righteousness of God. Savior Jesus Christ, not because of anything you've done, not because of anything you've accomplished, not because of any uh, pedigree you have, not because of what your parents were or your grandparents were. You are one of us, guys, because of the righteousness of God and Savior in Jesus Christ. Very fitting for the audience that He would do. And then lastly, we see very common, almost, you know, like take it to the bank when it comes to an epistle greeting you have this very uh very prevalent phrase used in the epistles grace and peace we've preached on this before this idea of grace and peace ephesians 1 1 and 2 says paul an apostle of christ jesus by the will of god to god's holy people in ephesus the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you. In Philippians 1, 1 and 2, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus and Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace. First and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, Romans, first and second Thessalonians, Titus, Philemon, grace and peace. You have the author. You have the title. You have the audience in first Peter. You have a gospel exaltation You have the common greeting grace and peace. This gives us all a good backdrop to the letter It helps us understand the context for which we are going to see what's going on But it's still basically the same as every other epistle greeting if we want to get a sense for what this letter is about we must look for what's different and what we find is we find it in that very last line. May grace and peace come, but be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That is different. That you don't see. That tag on at the end of grace and peace is something that is different than what we see in every other epistle. And we know this is a unique distinguisher for a couple reasons. one, Every other time grace and peace is mentioned in a greeting in an epistle, it is followed with from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or something very similar to that. If you look at all the other times grace and peace in all those epistles, almost exclusively it ends with, or something very similar to, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only time where he says grace and peace. And oh, it's going to be multiplied. What? In, to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's an indicator. Okay, something's different here. That that, that rhythm has, has changed. So whatever it is that Peter wants us to understand, it's coming because he wants to add that little distinguisher in it. Secondly, when we compare it to Peter's other greeting in 1 Peter, if you compare it, he tacks this on at the end. Take a look. In 1 Peter 1 and 2, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, period. And he ends it there. But here in 2 Peter, he tags it on. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, exact same wording, but now in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There's something different now. He, he added that on the second time. So that's something to take note, that all, all the radars should go off. Okay, uh, no other time this grace and, is grace and peace said like this. And Peter himself didn't even, he didn't even say it really that way in his first letter, but now he tags it on at the end. Finally, we know that knowledge, this idea of, of knowledge, of being multiplied, growing in knowledge, is going to be the major theme of the book. It's because he uses this word all the time in 2 Peter. He's going to use it again and again and again. He's going to use it three times alone in the first chapter. So whenever you see rep- repetition in an epistle, you, you, it clues you in to go, okay, there's something going on here about knowledge. We're going to have to see that. Knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. He tads it on. He puts it in his greeting. So we start to, this, this very little first couple of verses actually alert the reader to how he's going to flow this entire narrative of his letter through the lens by which we should see what 2 Peter is doing. Now, there is a basic common word for the word knowledge that is used hundreds of times in the New Testament. It's that kind of basic common view of knowledge. But here in this greeting and throughout the letter Peter is going to use a much more unique version of the word. One scholar puts it this way. He says, this is a strength informed of the basic word. It conveys an idea of a full, rich, thorough knowledge involving a degree of intimate understanding. It involves not merely knowing the truth about Christ, but actually knowing him. In its verbal form, it means to become thoroughly acquainted with, to know thoroughly, to recognize, or to perceive who a person is. To know someone that is different than knowing about someone. Because you can know, and then you can know. You can know a lot about, but that is very different than to know intimately, personally, to know who a person is. And so when Peter writes, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, and of Jesus our Lord. He's not saying may, may your systematic theology grow. He, he's not saying uh, may, you, may your, uh, your sight words and your, and your Bible memorization. May you, may you really lean into that and really memorize a lot more scripture. He's not saying hey you should uh, take a, a class. A seminary class. And, and be able to really be able to pull out some more knowledge about God. That's, that's how you grow. No he's saying this is, this is it. May grace and peace be multiplied to you as you sit and abide in knowing the very person of God. And we see this distinction, this distinction between knowing and knowing. We actually see it in the very first verses of 2 Peter. He makes this distinguishing point between the basic and the intimate forms of knowledge just a few verses later. A few verses later, Peter lists qualities that flow from knowing God and one of them is knowledge. So he's going to say, hey, listen, uh, you need to know God and to supplement that, to supplement that relationship you have with him, one of the things you're going to do is you're going to get to know him. You're going to actually acquire knowledge about. Take a look here just a few verses later in 1 Peter 3 and 5. He says this, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. That's that intimate, personal word. And then just one verse later, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and with virtue knowledge. Different word. Same with different variation of the word. What he's saying here is, I want you to know God deeply, intimately, that thorough knowledge, that knowing someone on that intimate level, And one of the ways you do that, one of the ways you supplement it, is you build, you make every effort to supplement your faith with knowledge, with actually knowing things about God. Because you actually have to know things about someone in order to really know them, so that they're not working against each other, but they're two distinct things. You know something about someone in order to get to know them. Does that track? So he even uses the distinguishing uh, types of knowledge even within the first couple of verses right here. There's a difference between knowing and knowing. You can know a lot about someone and not truly know them. Now, this intimate word is actually found, the equivalent is found in the Old Testament. And it's found in relation between a husband and a wife. If you go all the way back to Genesis, a couple of verses in Genesis 7, 4, 17, 25. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And Adam knew his wife, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. This is what we're talking about, this deep, intimate knowledge of someone that we see penultimately in marriage, two people who know each other physically, emotionally, spiritually, And that knowledge is supplemented by knowing things about them. You know things about them as you are gaining and growing in your knowledge of them. See, I have supplemental knowledge about my wife. I know all sorts of things about her. I know that her exclusive nighttime snack is the Mickey Mouse-styled goldfish, and she forbids our children from having any. There is literally a giant Mickey Mouse goldfish box, the one we use downstairs that our children are probably eating right now, sitting on top of our fridge, and our children beg for it. And my wife goes, nope, that's Mama's snack. There's a little quirk about her I love. She forbids our own children from having goldfish crackers because those are her nighttime snack. You don't mess with Mama's nighttime snack. I know that growing up in Vermont, if you add maple syrup to anything she is in, It only, maple syrup only makes things better. I don't care what it is, you can pour it on. I know that my wife, when in a stressful season, she grows a singular white hair out the middle of her forehead. Now, I ask permission to use that one, okay? (laughs) I know a lot about my wife, but that's different than knowing her physically, emotionally, spiritually, to know and to be known. Big, big difference. We supplement our faith by knowing things about God so that we can know him, abide in him, dwell in him, meditate on him, delight in him. This knowledge is what Peter will highlight all throughout 2 Peter. And the reason is, is because Peter throughout the letter is going to be confronting and countering falsehoods made by skeptics and false teachers. The letter is structured around three specific objections. Here's the first. Objection number one that he's going to address in this letter. And it's found in the very first chapter. These are just myths and you made it all up. That's the objection. That's what the false teachers will come. That's what people will start swirling as this thing is getting off the ground. You made this all up. They're just myths. Take a look. 2 Peter 1, 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly de- devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, and I won't give it all away now. We've got a whole series to do. But he goes on to talk about this. Because that's the falsehood, number one. That's the objection that he first needs to deal with, is that you guys, the fundamental question being asked is how do you know that this is real? How do you know that this thing that you have given your life to is real? Objection number two in the next chapter. In 2 Peter 2, he's going to deal with the next objection. And this is this, there is no final accountability. Live your life how you want. I don't want people telling me what's right and what's wrong. I kind of want to live myself. And so I am denying that there's some grand accountability at the end where we're all going to be judged. There's nothing like that. That's not what's going to take place. Second Peter 2, first part of 2 Peter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, will secretly bring in destructive heresies, he goes on to talk a little bit more about that, and many will follow their sensuality. These false teachers want to live, they want to live the way they want to, they want to follow their own impulses and urges and sensuality, and so they deny final accountability to justify that they can live however they want to go. And the fundamental question that Peter's going to answer is, how do you know that this isn't a prison? some system of control? How do you know that this faith that you followed isn't just made up and it's just a form of control, it's just this prison to keep you from doing the things that you want to do? No, 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 there's no final judgment. There's no final accountability. Live your life. Don't let the man tell you what to do. And the fundamental question is how do we know that this isn't just some system of control, a prison to keep you down? Finally, in the last chapter, he's going to deal with one more objection, and it's this. Things keep on moving. The day this day happened, the next day will happen, the next day will happen. Jesus isn't coming. Look, since the beginning of the world, everything is just, you know, day after day, the sun sets, the sun rises, and it's all going, there is no, there's no end in sight. There's no great hope at the end second peter 3 scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires they will say where is the promise of his coming For ever since the fathers fell asleep all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation there's we're not ultimately heading towards something everything just keeps on going there's no great hope and the fundamental question is how do we know this will end the way that we hoped. You've put such faith in the, the final coming. You put such faith that some, in the end, things are going to put back right. You, you've put such faith in everything that's difficult about this life. We've we set our eyes heavenly, knowing that this God, this supposed God of yours, is going to come back and make all things right. Well, listen the sun set last night and it rose today and it's going to set tomorrow it's going to set tonight and it's going to rise tomorrow we are continuing as they were all things are just going to keep going we are not headed towards some great final hope so live your life because it's a myth you can see how the whole thing is connected how do you know that this is real how do you know this isn't a prison, some system of control? How do you know this will end the way that you hoped? Welcome to the book of Second Peter. And Peter's answer is this. Peter's answer is not, well, I can map it out for you. I've got some math equation, and if I if I just prove the formula, I can I can sh- I can show you why God is real. I, I can show you some things over here, and, and if I have enough if I have enough good answers, or, or, or perhaps if um you know I, I went and took an apologetics class, and I can Lord liar or lunatic you, and I can I can explain all this stuff, and I can I can get you to a place where it will cognitively and logically make sense to you, and then you'll believe. That's knowledge about. What Peter says is, this is how I know. Because I know God. I I know him. And when you know someone, you don't have all the answers. But you just know. To know and to be known. Let's call the band up as we reflect on this for a few minutes. You see, these objections are the same as today. There's nothing new under the sun. People ask, neighbors, social media, influencers, people in your office or neighborhood, how do you know that this is real? There are no definitive data points that prove Christianity, just like there are no tangible proofs that your marriage is real. You can't prove it, but look at your spouse. Look at your spouse now. How do you know? You just know. I know because I know and I'm known. That's how I know. Because I know Jesus. I've dwelt with him, I have a knowledge of him. How do you know that this isn't a prison? Some system of control. There are a lot of rules to religion and a lot of people who benefit from those rules. Just like your marriage has rules. How do you know you're not trapped? You just know. To know and to be known. And how do you know it will end the way you hope? The world keeps on spinning. It doesn't look like we're heading in the right direction at all. Talked to my father-in-law about artificial intelligence. (laughs) Blew my mind. It's not looking good. How do you know this will all end the way you hope? I don't know. I guess I just know, and I'm known. As we start this letter, here's my invitation to you. For some of you, you don't know God. You might have been coming to church for a while. You might have been dragged here. You might might be here and you've just been sitting in the pew for a long time. You know some things about God, but you don't know God. Here's the invitation Peter gives obtain a faith, as he says in 1 Peter 2, 2 Peter 1, 1, obtain a faith of equal standing to ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. You have an opportunity today to begin a relationship with Jesus, to obtain a faith of equal standing to ours, not because of anything that you have done, but only because of the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. If that's you today, I would love to help you start that knowledge now grow in knowing God amidst all of those questions is this real is this a system of control how do I know this is all going to end whatever the answer is knowing God and we'd like to help you today to start a relationship with Jesus but if you've known God if you've dwelt with God if you have a knowledge of Jesus Christ the the answer for you the invitation today is to grow in that knowledge the very first words of this book be multiplied grow in the knowledge of god and then the very last words of this letter but grow in the grace and knowledge of lord and savior jesus christ grow in your knowledge my wife and i we don't have a song as much as an album the album uh, All About Love by Stephen Curtis Chapman. He has this one track on there called Holding a Mystery. And the chorus goes like this, because when I look in your eyes, I see a million miles across an endless sea. I want to sail the waves and make the great discovery. You see, there is no end to the discovery in your marriage, and there's no end the discovery of that knowledge and intimacy with God. Grow in it. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 80 years, 90 years. It is an endless sea of knowledge of God, growing and knowing him more. This book invites you into that. So if you've just started, if if this is new, brand new to you, or if you've been doing this for a long time, we would love to help start that faith. Maybe there's something inside of you that says, I've stalled and I, I need this book to re- restart that, that true abiding in knowledge of us. We're going to be up front here. We'd love, the song's going to be playing. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to start that conversation with you. Come on down. We've got some elders here that would love to pray with you as well. But I invite you to start that relationship today or commit through this series to grow, to, to start that journey again or continue that journey of that endless sea of intimacy and knowledge of God. Would you stand? Let's sing this